When I was a junior in college, I realized that through a combination of AP credit hours from high school and my normal class load, that I would inadvertently graduate a semester early if I continued as I had been. Finding this revelation completely unacceptable and in no rush to enter the real world, I decided to add another minor, psychology. So my psychology classes comprised far and away the most interesting things that I learned in college. And it was in a 101 level class that I took senior year that a professor said something that always stuck with me. She said, if you're trying to improve your health, start with sleep. If memory serves, and who knows if it can, because I spent many mornings hungover in early classes in college, the specific use case she was highlighting pertained to diet and exercise. You shouldn't sacrifice sleep to get up early and work out, she had explained, because if you're not sleeping enough, the rest of it doesn't really matter. There was a domino effect quality to the sentiment that one action sets off a chain of physiological events. And while most people don't think about sleep in the context of diet and exercise, her point was that it is the foundation on which all other processes are built. Without it, much of the effort spent on the other components is just wasted. Welcome back to the Money with Katie show, rich party girls and boys. In honor of the new year, new me resolutions and the annual dry January hints from your most responsible friends, today's episode is a reflection on the last dry 16 months of my life. So back to the story. This anecdote about Psych 101 feels fitting for a few reasons. One, it's a story from college, which, as you'll hear shortly, has had a few important holdovers in my adult life. And two, it focuses on the importance of sleep. Sleep is, as most people who drink while using an aura ring know, one of the first things that alcohol begins to degrade. It's estimated that after fewer than two drinks, your sleep quality is diminished by 9%. Having two drinks? Expect to sleep 24% less well. More than two? your sleep will be roughly 39% less effective. This is because, according to the National Library of Medicine, quote, alcohol acts as a sedative that interacts with several neurotransmitter systems important in the regulation of sleep, end quote. I remember my friends and I used to joke that ingesting alcohol was literally drinking poison, but like a fun poison. And if you're a fan of the Huberman Lab podcast, you may have caught Dr. Huberman's viral episode about just how bad alcohol is for the human brain. Something that felt like incredible confirmation bias for me when I heard it for the first time after being alcohol-free for several months, but would have been an egregious affront on my lifestyle only a year earlier. In case you missed it, he more or less debunks the idea that drinking in moderation is healthier than not drinking at all, but he does so in typical two-hour Huberman fashion that'll have you questioning every drink that you ever picked up. So we'll get right back into where this is all going after a quick break. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
it's at this point that you might be like, wait a second, I thought I was listening to a podcast about money. What does alcohol have to do with finances? So fair enough, I'll humor you. Let's talk about the trickle-down economics of drinking. While my own decision to stop drinking was not financially motivated, it probably could have been. According to a CNN piece from January 2020, which was hell of a time to publish a piece about alcohol consumption trends, that is for sure, a survey found that millennials spend an average of $300 per month on alcohol. I find these results dubiously high. They might have conducted the survey from a booth in a New York City pub, but who knows. But still, it's interesting to extrapolate those costs over a lifetime. Alcohol.org found the average New Yorker will spend $121,000 on alcohol over the course of their lives, while people in Birmingham, Alabama will spend the least at around $58,000 over a lifetime. Moreover, we found some research that indicated one in two drunk people will shop while intoxicated. So it might be that you get a little loose, then you pull up the old Lululemon app. I know we've all been there. But in my experience, there is a sort of trickle-down economics that happens when drinking. You go out drinking, you spend money on alcohol for yourself, maybe for others, and then while drunk, you crack your phone screen. So that's $200 to replace. You order a bunch of food and you can't go pick it up, so there's a $20 delivery fee. You have to take an Uber home instead of driving, so there's $30. And then you wake up feeling like shit, you skip your workout, and you uh, have to pay the $20 cancellation fee for class. So I know I'm describing like a pretty freewheeling weekend that'll probably resonate more with my younger listeners in big cities than perhaps my older rich humans who have long left this lifestyle in the dust. But the fact of the matter is the expense of boozing in my own life was rarely contained to the expense of the alcohol itself. There's even research that suggests drinking too much and spending too much are highly correlated phenomena because they both deal with impulsivity and compulsivity. That is, people who tend to struggle with one are more likely to struggle with the other. The CDC even studies the effects of alcohol on public health, and part of public health is the economy. It estimates that as of 2010, excessive drinking costs the economy about $250 billion per year. This is, of course, the opposite way to look at the problem, not what individuals are spending on alcohol, but that a counterfactual economy where people do not consume alcohol would be $250 billion per year bigger. Most of this cost, like 72% of it, comes in the form of decreased workplace productivity, a fact that will surprise nobody if you've ever been hungover at work, but healthcare expenses, criminal justice system expenses, and motor vehicle crashes together contribute the remaining 28%. Still, it's unfair to share those numbers without also sharing that America's beer, wine, and spirits retailers create 2 million jobs in the U.S., and as of 2018, the alcohol industry was responsible for an estimated 1.65% of GDP. It's estimated the total economic impact is roughly $363 billion annually, which, if you're going to write off the $250 billion in losses, is still roughly a $100 billion net gain. But a gain for whom? Because it's funny to jump immediately to numbers like the economy, GDP, workplace productivity, as though they could reliably tell us whether or not something is actually good for people. It's a little dystopian to qualify discussion about alcohol's impact on humanity by focusing on workplace productivity, of all things. 
After all, a higher GDP is not synonymous with a happier, healthier country. The best thing for GDP would be for all of us to be constantly working and consuming, never sleeping, and exploiting one another wherever possible. Economic benefit is not necessarily the same thing as human benefit. But I knew what was best for me. Alcohol was one of the last holdovers in my life from my college days. A period of life when it might not be accurate to say I was irresponsible, but rather that I lacked responsibility. Sure, I had to keep my scholarship and worry about internships, but for the most part, my concerns relative to the things that I worry about now as I approach 30 were pretty minimal. The stakes did not feel very high. Thus, this carefree period of my life was characterized by, as you probably surmised from my earlier comment about being hungover in class, a lot of drinking. I pre-gamed nearly every event I attended, and there was not much that I did socially without a drink in my hand. And as I graduated into the real world and suddenly had more money and was legally able to drink, the party just continued. I remember one Friday morning at my first job, after a national tequila day celebration at a Mexican restaurant that had turned into an all-night affair, that I showed up around 11 a.m., giant coffee in hand, told my team, hey, hey, I have a stomach thing, I don't feel well. And one of them was like, weird, I didn't realize that was a side effect of tequila. So I was really lucky that I worked in a laid-back environment where this sort of occasional shortcoming didn't get me into any real trouble. But we often drink together at the office on Fridays. Drinking was just part of the workplace culture too. It was very normal, so it felt a little inescapable. Friday afternoon at work, beers. <laughs> Girls night on a Tuesday, wine. Sunday brunch, you already know mimosas are flowing. So I was drinking more often than I was not, but as my career progressed and I went from working for someone else to working for myself, it became harder to ignore the downsides, even casual drinking. I began wearing an aura ring in 2020 and I would notice that my sleep after a glass or two of wine would get totally obliterated. My body temperature and heart rate were elevated. My heart rate variability and deep sleep were in the basement. And it would take days for my biodata to start returning normal results after a single night of drinking. And the resultant anxiety, or hangxiety as it's sometimes referred to, became harder to ignore. My brain would feel just slightly off the next morning, as if something somewhere was misfiring and I just could not quite connect the right wires. It gave me this general sense of unease that would just stalk me around all day long. It was very unpleasant. Still, giving up alcohol entirely felt like an extreme decision and like it would suggest to those around me that I had a problem. It's not that I was chemically addicted to the substance, just that I'd find myself looking forward to the end of the day when I could uncork the bottle of red and melt into my couch, and I found that a little troubling. I didn't like the way I looked forward to it at the end of the day as though it were an escape, but I also felt as though alcohol and fun were synonyms. How could I still cut loose and have a good time without booze? When that connection had been totally calcified over the last decade of my life. The grappling went on for months, but as my career and life demanded more and more of me, I knew that I wanted to feel like my best self all of the time. 
We'll be right back after a quick break. In September 2022, I read Holly Whitaker's controversial book, Quit Like a Woman, which framed alcohol consumption as something that keeps women down. And framing anything as a feminist issue immediately gets me interested, so check and mate, Holly. Now, I say the book is controversial because anytime we're talking about the right or wrong way to deal with something as deeply personal and layered as substance abuse or addiction, people are entitled to have equally personal and layered reactions. But I found the first half of the book specifically to be really comforting because in not so many words, it kind of validated how I was feeling. It said, you're not weird for wanting to quit drinking. There is nothing wrong with admitting that alcohol is, in many ways, making your life worse more than it's making it better. And her perspective on my biggest concern, the alcohol fun connection, felt like liberation. She mentioned how people often feel they need alcohol to commemorate special events. And that was very true for me, that it was a celebratory choice. And she reframed this. She said, wouldn't you rather be fully present, fully alive and aware and engaged for the most important moments in your life? Isn't it more fun to experience that clearly without the distortion? Reading Quit Like a Woman gave me the confidence to own the decision, which was supplemented by the popularized Sober Curious movement. And while these trends might feel like just that, trends, it is interesting how a cultural perception shift of a substance can permanently alter the social cachet around that substance. Take cigarettes, for example. Since the 1960s, the number of adult smokers has fallen by 68%, from 43% of all adults in 1965 to only 14% in 2018. But alcohol has outmaneuvered smoking from a marketing standpoint. Someone who smokes is called a smoker, while someone who doesn't doesn't really have a name. Sure, you could be a non-smoker, but it's more common to define yourself by the act of participating versus the act of abstaining. People who drink aren't called drinkers because drinking is the default state. It's an assumption that if you smoke cigarettes, you will become addicted to them. It's possible to be a social smoker in the sense that you may only smoke cigarettes in certain contexts, but it's well understood that cigarettes are addictive and smoking them regularly is likely to create a chemical dependency. The alcohol industry's masterful avoidance of this dark spot should be studied in MBA programs for marketing because someone who's addicted to alcohol is an alcoholic. Now, this is the trick. It's not the alcohol. It's not the addictive substance that is the problem. It's your, quote, inability to drink responsibly. So the alcoholic framework places the blame on the person and not on the drug. The average advertisement for alcohol shows hot, young, sweaty bodies writhing around in a neon-lit club, just having a great time, looking sexy and fun and fabulous. And how does every ad for alcohol end? With someone whispering, please drink responsibly. Now compare that to some of the graphic warning labels that are used on boxes of cigarettes. Compare it to the litany of laws and regulations prohibiting tobacco companies from advertising in the same ways. Cigarettes aren't illegal, but you probably don't associate them with having a good time the same way you do with alcohol. And that's not an accident. Seven or more drinks per week for women, so think one per day, is considered excessive in most research about the topic. That is, enough to cause health problems. 
Now, I never considered myself a heavy drinker from my one or two glasses of wine every night, but by pretty much all standards, that's textbook heavy drinking. Whether or not I wanted to admit it, my habits did qualify me as a heavy drinker. That said, alcohol was a ritual for me in the same way that coffee is a ritual. And I missed the act of having that drink at the end of the day. So I started drinking alcohol-free beverages like athletic brewing, non-alcoholic beer. Uh, Weddings were also a little bit challenging to be sober since free alcohol was flowing. But the bartenders usually happy to make a mocktail and I have absolutely loved not going to the airport on Sundays with a headache. So talking about plans for the future, I stopped drinking in September 2022. I figured I would last a few months, but then I started experiencing a different kind of trickle-down economics. Much like the Psych 101 teacher's comments about physiological domino effects, Whitaker's experience in Quit Like a Woman highlighted this too. She describes the way that she was addicted to alcohol, drugs, she was suffering with disordered eating, she had financially destructive habits. It was a real maelstrom of maladies. And she self-reported that so much of her ruinous behavior seemed to stem from the drinking itself. That once she quit drinking, she found it much easier to face the other issues. And I want to be very careful in using this example, of course, because addiction is a deadly serious struggle that impacts tens of millions of people in different ways. But Whitaker's recounting of the way the alcohol seemed to set off a domino effect that created other problems for her resonated with me. Because removing it entirely from my life had a sort of clarifying effect. It allowed me to see where other things were running amok. For starters, the quality and consistency of my sleep improved markedly. Alcohol's effect on my sleep could have been a confounding variable in my experience, but I did notice an almost immediate decrease in my experience of low-level baseline anxiety. There were parts of my day, hell, there were parts of my week that felt totally reclaimed. The neurological fuzziness and sense of just being slightly off for a few mornings each week went away. At the beginning of 2023, we did an episode about a fantastic but ridiculously long annual review process that I did at the end of 2022. We'll link it in the show notes. And it's almost as though removing alcohol called more attention to my other perhaps questionable health choices. I started eating better, drinking more water, exercising more consistently. I had an easier time identifying routines that helped me feel like myself. And again, while it might be dangerous to draw a direct line between cutting out alcohol and something like professional success, it is true that this has been my most professionally successful year ever. Though, again, hesitant to make that a focus because I do think the message that one should stop drinking so they can check more prototypically ambitious boxes might be replacing one life-diminishing habit with another, but I guess it depends on what you're interested in. Still... All that to say, it might be an interesting experiment. Take two groups of people who are trying to earn more and spend less, give one group a budget, and give the other group prohibition, (laughs) an inability to drink alcohol, and then see which one would have better financial consequences. I don't know. I think I might put my money on team booze-free over team budget in this case, knowing what I know now after the last 16 months. 
And I'm wary of generalizing too much in this episode because I know not everyone has the same relationship with substances that I do, and not everyone has an obsessive personality the way I do. Some people don't feel anxiety. Some people do not drink often enough that removing it from their life would materially impact it. Some people don't like feeling drunk. Some people don't associate booze with the happy-go-lucky, carefree times in their life enough to consistently overdo it. But I did. Boy, did I. So there's a broader lesson here, I think, about the power of identifying root causes. Is your performance at work slipping because you're not interested in your job or because you're not sleeping well enough for your brain to even get fully engaged? You might be focusing your energy on fixing the job or finding a different job when the real issue is that you're drinking coffee at five o'clock at night. Are you spending money on stuff you don't need for a dopamine hit because you're an irresponsible piece of shit? or because you're chronically dehydrated and you haven't eaten a vegetable or exercised in a month and so your dopamine levels are just in the basement and are grasping at straws wherever it feels easy and obvious. You might think you need to make a better budget, but like you might just actually need to go for a walk and get some fresh air. Alcohol just so happens to be an incredibly prevalent example of a problematic root cause because of its effects on the brain and its widespread normalization and use. But your root cause might be something totally different. And I don't know, maybe my Psych 101 teacher was right. Maybe we all just need more sleep. That's all for this week, and I'll see you next week, same time, same place, on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by Hannah Velez and me, Katie Gaditasan, with our audio engineering and sound design from Nick Torres. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and additional fact-checking comes from Kate Brandt. 